Thanks, Eugene. Morning, Arcadia. Uh, if you're new, my name is Frank. I'm the teaching pastor here, and we uh, welcome you. We're glad that you're here. Uh, just a little um, a bit of info, info as we get started. Uh, if you're wondering about Redemption Church, uh, Redemption is one church uh, with six different congregations, and we are the Arcadia Congregation. Uh, there are congregations that meet all through uh, Phoenix and even in Flagstaff as well. And uh, so we are here at Arcadia, and um, I have a couple of quick announcements before we get into the message, which, by the way, uh, we're going to look at that passage that Eugene just read for us. So it's 1 John chapter 1, if you want to turn there. Uh, that's where we're going to be. We're going to do all of uh, chapter... That's interesting. That's supposed to be for later, but um, thank you. Okay. He's my bodyguard. So just watch out. I was doing something. I'm not sure why. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I'll just tell you, I have some information here for you that you might be interested in. <laughs> I don't know what I was saying before, but I know I need to mention these two things. Uh, many of you know Stephanie Shoemate. She is our operations manager here at Redemption Arcadia. Uh, on uh, Tuesday uh, afternoon, I got a text from her that, that said that she, her grandfather had uh, passed away, and uh, I know that uh, many of the people in this congregation know her grandfather, uh, and, and uh, so I just wanted to mention two things. Be praying for Stephanie and her family. Uh, Stephanie's brother, Randy, also sometimes plays in the band, uh, so you might know him, uh, and uh, uh, so be praying for their family, but also... Uh, the memorial service for her grandfather is tomorrow at Camelback Bible Church uh, at 11 o'clock in the morning. So if, if you needed that information, I just wanted to pass that along to you. And then uh, also uh, on um, Friday or Saturday, I, the, the, the days have been blurring together for me this, this last week, I'm sorry, but on Friday or Saturday, uh, Sean Myers and his wife Candace. well actually Candace did all the work, but Candace gave birth to their third child, this time a girl, which they are excited about, and her name is Eve Ann Elise Myers. Uh, Elise or Elise? Elise. Um, it's Elise. Elise Myers. And uh, if you're wondering, all right, who's Sean Myers? I know you have a lot of Seans at this church. Well, uh, Sean is the youngest of the Seans, and he preaches occasionally and sometimes does uh, the announcements and... Um, and introduces communion. So they had their baby, so also be praying for them. So uh, neither Stephanie nor Sean are here this morning because of uh, these situations that they're taking care of. So I'm starting to feel like I'm getting back in the groove. It'll be good in about another 10 minutes, so okay. Um, anyway, we have been preaching for the last uh, five weeks. This is our fifth week of a six-week series uh, called Building a Stronger Church, Building a Better Church, uh, Taking a Good Church, and Making it a, a Great Church. And really, it's uh, uh, the first time that the local congregations of Redemption Church have been able to do vision work within the context of their local community. Uh, Big R Redemption Church likes to say that we are gospel-centered but outward and outward-focused, which means we value the gospel, we value the Word of God, but uh, we know that it's not just for us. And uh, in this uh, first letter that John writes today, as we get into that, we'll see that John has the same take uh, on the gospel, that, that he receives the gospel, but it's also his responsibility to proclaim it to those who don't yet know Jesus. So gospel-centered, outward-focused, and all of life is all for Christ. And Arcadia, our vision is that we want to know Jesus and we want to love our community. That is our manifestation of this vision. And so we've talked about unity in the church, that the church is, is one body but with diverse and different members, but there is a harmonizing factor in the church and that would be the resurrected Jesus Christ. And so uh, no matter how different we are, we have unity. Uh, we've also talked about the importance of uh, proclaiming the gospel and teaching the word of God. We've talked about generosity, and then last week we talked about how prayer is the foundation of any strong church. Next week we'll talk about the Great Commission, being called and sent, uh, and today we're going to talk about confession. Jo uh, Sean Johnson, who leads the music here, already mentioned that, that, that we're going to be talking about that today, and I know that for some of you, you might be thinking, well, that, that seems like an odd characteristic uh, that you might call out for being a great uh, church. And I understand that, especially since 
um, there happens to be, for many people, a lot, of, a lot of baggage with the term and the practice of confession. Uh, and not all, uh, not all of that baggage is very pleasant for uh, many of us. Uh, for instance, if you have a, a Catholic church background, there may be for you, uh, when it comes to confession, the practice of confession, the discipline of confession, uh, even a sense of, of loathing or mocking or fear. But at the same time, you may have a sense of tradition uh, about it, if you have that background. Uh, certainly when it comes to Hollywood and movies and television, uh, they tend to treat confession, the practice of confession, with both respect and derision, but probably more on the derision uh, side than anything, and is often the butt of jokes in, in television shows and movies. Of course, if you have no church background whatsoever, you might be sitting there wondering why the church is talking about what police officers try to get out of uh, criminal suspects, and you're, like, you're thoroughly confused now. That's not what it is. Um, if you write a book, uh, apparently, it's become very fashionable and provocative to include in the title of the book the word confessions. So I, I went on, on uh, Amazon, and just on the first page, these are the books I got. Confessions of a Taxi Driver, Confessions of a Shopaholic. Are any of these authors in this audience, by the way? I don't know. Uh, confessions of a Murder Suspect, Confessions of a Former Bully, and if you don't buy his book, he'll beat you up. Uh, confessions of an economic hitman, confessions of a scary mommy, confessions of an advertising man. Here's one that came out a little less than a year ago. How I paid $8 for $170 worth of groceries, confessions of a coupon fashionista. And then the latest, this just came out a couple of weeks ago, confessions of a prepper. How to plan and protect your family and friends during any disaster. I think that might be required reading for some of us. So. Of course, in the 5th century, there was the classic work that St. Augustine's wrote, which is simply called Confessions. And I would suggest that the genre of St. Augustine's uh, Confessions is considerably different than those that we just went through, and probably a lot more important than those that we uh, went through. Uh, it's similar to the confession that we had during our, our time of music and worship, as a matter of fact. So the, the word confession for us contains connotations of intrigue, of darkness, of mystery, and of revelation, which most of us really love as long as it's somebody else that that's happening to. That's, that's the tendency that we have. Uh, let me talk just a little bit about the entomology of, of the word confession. It comes from the Latin word uh, confitery. Uh, we have a Latin teacher in our congregation, and I was trying to check this out with her, and she said it's all correct except my pronunciation, which I've never been able to get right, but the word is confitery, something that, C-O-N-F-I-T-E-R-I, and literally it's a conflation of two words, con meaning with, and fiteri meaning to admit, so you admit with somebody that which uh, everybody knows is true, especially once it's out in the open. Let me give you some definitions found these definitions. I found one of them, I think, is particularly helpful. Uh, a confession is a statement made by a person acknowledging some personal fact that the person would prefer to keep hidden. The term is generally associated with admission of a moral or legal wrong. That's eh, okay. Uh, that sounds a little bit more like self-disclosure than true confession. Uh, here's another one. Uh, it's an admission or acknowledgement that one has done something that one is ashamed or embarrassed about. Not complete enough. Uh, I tend to like this one, although it needs, it needs some other things to hang on it, but I like it. Confession strips away the veil that we often cast over our actions and realigns our souls with what is best and truest. And then, of course, there's this definition. Confession is the act of confessing, which I've always found very helpful. So... Um, I want us also to know the Greek word for confession, which is in the passage that we just read. The, the Greek word is homologamon, or homo, one Greek word meaning same, and logos, which is the Greek word for word. So it's the same word. So just like the Latin, the idea behind the Greek word, which we find in our text today, the idea behind it is to agree with or to acknowledge that which everyone knows is true. That's what confession literally means. And we want to talk about why it's important and the practice of it. So again, you might be thinking, well, okay, so how does all of this make for a better, stronger, 
uh, church, and we find our answer in the passage that Eugene read today. It's 1 John uh, uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. That paragraph, the big idea of that paragraph is that we are called to, bless you, we are called to walk in the light, and confession is a huge part, if not some would argue the biggest part, of walking in the light. But before we get there, we need some, a little bit of context. First uh, John, the, the letter of First John was written primarily by uh, uh, John to address the false teaching that had infiltrated the church in the late first century. And the false teaching goes something like this. It was the claim that sin, wrongdoing, sin, was not as deadly or destructive that, that, we, that, that we might think it is. It, it, it's not even something that we should be concerned about. In fact, for, for many, they were beginning to teach that sin was something that, that could be advocated or ignored or in some places even celebrated. That teaching was, was starting to infiltrate uh, the church. And there's a lot of background that goes with it, but essentially that was, that was the result of the teaching. And this, this claim about sin is not unique at all. It's similar to virtually any other era of humanity like today. I mean, today we have people constantly trying to press in on the Orthodox Church, Orthodox meaning that we would follow the, the Word of God, the Orthodox Church saying, come on, is it really that bad? And, and not only saying, is it really that bad, but wait a minute, we should just celebrate it. We can even glory in our sin. Frankly, there's rarely a time in human history when sin is taken as seriously as it should be. It is just human nature to gloss over sin, to, to, uh, to, to redefine sin, to use euphemisms uh, for the word sin, to deny sin, and even to glorify it. Uh, in the 21st century, which is when we live, for instance, we are especially adept right now at using public relations and image management techniques to not only make sin acceptable, to not only dress up uh, sin and make it tolerable, but even in many cases to promote it as worthy as maybe even the best way that somebody could possibly live. Uh, Leon Morris, who's a scholar, uh, says it this way about 21st century sin. He writes, Modern's claim that sin is a disease or weakness that one cannot or should not be expected to control, or something due to environment, heredity, or necessity. People come to regard sin as their fate, not their fault. As a result, we constantly look for ways to let sin off the hook. Such people deceive themselves to their peril. Well, they were having the exact same problem in the first century when John wrote this letter. A lot of people have this idea that the letter of 1 John is all about love. And that is an important theme in the book of 1 John. But the motivation for writing this letter was sin, dealing with sin. The reality is, is that it's a letter about sin that God's love can conquer, but the motivation for writing the letter was sin. And, and to see the full scope of what John is arguing in our passage, I want to start with the first four verses of chapter 1 so we have some context. So starting with the first four verses, John writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life that was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was in the Father and was made manifest to us. Here's what John is doing. He is making it absolutely positively clear that he was an eyewitness and many others were an eyewitness to uh, uh, the Messiah, to the, uh, the, the one who carried the message of the gospel and who is the gospel, Jesus Christ. He's saying, you cannot deny that this happened. This is Clearly something that has been witnessed not only by me, I was an eyewitness, I, and I didn't just see it from afar, I walked with the guy for three years, but there were many others of us as well. And so he's just making sure that they understand. I have an authority, I have a platform, I have credibility under, uh, on which I can stand in order to write this letter and say the things that I'm going to say in the letter. And then verse 3, he says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to also to you. So there's that idea that once you've received the gospel, it's not just yours to keep and to hoard to yourself, 
Once you've received the gospel, you are now to turn yourself outward and go and find other people who have not heard the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and share it with them as well. So he says it's not just for us. I'm also proclaiming it to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Our fellowship is with God. And, verse 4, we are writing these things so that our joy may, may be made complete. So there's the payoff right there in the last part of verse 3 and, and, and all of first, verse 4. What he's saying is, listen, what I want you to have is, number one, fellowship with each other. That's really important. I want you to have community. I want you to have relationship. I want you to have a, a, a trust and, and reliance and hope and, and an environment of grace. But not only do I want you to have this fellowship with each other, but I also want you to have fellowship with God, with the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ, eternal life, salvation, sanctification. I want that for you also. And then he says, I also want you to have joy. This, this joy is for everybody, completed joy. Uh, one scholar writes this, one of John's clearly stated purposes in this letter is to promote joy. And the ironic or counterintuitive thing about this letter is that it's a letter about sin, but he's saying if you deal with your sin properly, it will lead to joy. And so you think about these three things that he's promoting here. He's saying fellowship with each other, community with each other, fellowship with God, and joy. Who doesn't want those three things? Everybody wants those three things. And they are three things that, that clearly make for a better, stronger church that is on mission and living their vision. And then he tells us in the six verses that we will look at more closely today, the passage that Eugene read, he tells us what that entails. How do we go about uh, uh, this fellowship and this joy? And he says two things. Walking in the light and confession. In other words, there's fellowship and joy when we walk in the light of the life of, uh, 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 and live with each other in, in an environment of confession. So, let's kind of unpack that. In verse 6, John says, This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. So, God is light. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. This is a, this is a major theme uh, in the Bible, that God is light. Th there is no darkness in God. There's nothing evil. There's no wickedness. There's nothing unholy. Reality TV did not come from God. And, and, and when darkness and light show up at the same time, which one of those, which one of those wins every single time? Well, it's, it's going to be the light. You, you, never, you never have darkness and light show up and light shies away from the darkness. Darkness always retreats. And then we think about, well, what is it that light does? Just pragmatically, what is the light does? Well, light uh, generates life for us. It generates growth. It empowers us. Uh, it, it is also used to measure things. It's a pretty accurate way to be able to measure things. So you could say that it's a way of evaluating things. And then thirdly, light reveals what is hidden. When you, when you cast light on something, it reveals what uh, is hidden naturally by the darkness or what you and I might be trying to hide by putting it into darkness. And John says, if you want fellowship and true community and if you want joy, you're going to walk with him in the light. And God is light. And so when we walk with him, we understand that God empowers us. God, God gives us life. God is the measure for truth and wisdom. And God reveals what is hidden in our lives. Uh, anyone watch Chef Ramsay, that Kitchen Nightmares show? Anybody watch that? Come on. Hey, you can admit it. All right, good. I got a hand in the back. Okay, that's good. Uh, another one over there. All right, so he's, he's the guy that goes around and finds these awful restaurants that aren't doing well and then confronts the owners with what's wrong uh, with the restaurants. It's called Kitchen Nightmares, I think. I'm not a huge fan, but when I am watching it, sometimes I have to watch it in order to be with my family, but when I am watching it, <clears throat> my favorite part of the show is when he goes into the dark recesses of the kitchen or, or some of the coolers and he shines light on what's really back there. And he begins to stick his hand into some of that stuff and pull it out. 
And, and, and I love that because you know, the, the reaction of the owners is, is almost always the same. We clean this thing every week, man. I can't believe you planted that stuff there. And he's going, no, look at this. This has been here for years and years and years. And he's finding food that has been sitting back there for, for literally more than, more than a year. I mean, it's, it's, uh, but what he's doing is he's shining light on the reality. He's, he's explaining to them, here are the horrors that you have going on in the back room of your restaurant. Uh, Stephen Smalley writes that the book of 1 John is concerned with true Christian discipleship, and it is clear from these first few verses that true Christian discipleship takes place in the light of God. He's there to, to reveal to us things that in our life that need to change. And then John says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness... While we walk in sin and wickedness, in the unholy desires of our flesh, if we say that we have fellowship with him but we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we, if we say that we are Christ, yet in darkness, we, in our hidden life, in our secret life, we are, we are continuing with this uh, perpetual pet sin that we have and we're unrepentant uh, about it. We make ourselves liars. We're, we're hypocrites. We're double-minded he says we do not practice the truth. Literally, we do not live the truth. We do not do the truth. And, and let me just say that it is unsustainable to speak one thing and live another and expect to live life in, in, in a genuine community and experience genuine relationship with others or with God. It's just not sustainable. So John is trying to get that for us. He wants our joy to be complete. And one, of the way that, one, of the way, one way our joy is completed is for us to live in the true illuminated fellowship. And then verse 7, he says, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us. Literally, the word pure is purifies us from all sin. Again, Stephen Smalley, who's written a commentary on 1 John, he articulates uh, this, this is what he says about how, how important the light thing is. He says, living as a believer... We are to be both illumined and illuminating. We are to be both illumined and illuminating. We are to be illumined. We should be walking in the light, the truth, and the wisdom of God. We should be knowing Jesus. And then we should be illuminating as well. We should be, we should be shining that light, shedding that light. We should be testifying uh, to his light to others in our community by loving and serving the community. And that's our vision, Arcadia. That's it right there, knowing Jesus and loving our community. And that's what the church is supposed to be, living in the light and shedding the light, reflecting the light as well. Something else that's interesting, he says if we walk in the light, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. I've discussed this before. There, there are a lot of people who are really quite resistant to the idea of blood atonement for our sins. Um, they, they like a lot of what the Bible has to say, but when it comes to that blood atonement stuff, they, they, they reject it, they deny it, they ignore it, or they try to rewrite it in, in some way. And some people are constantly bashing the Apostle Paul when he talks about the blood of Jesus. Well, if, they, if you happen to be one of those people that bashes Paul for blood atonement, you better start bashing John too, because John teaches and preaches this as well, and he believes it. The blood cleanses us, purifies us, and the tense of that verb in that passage is continuous. So the blood is doing this to us all the time. It never stops and starts. And not only that, but again, I just want to mention this. If you're skittish about blood atonement, you might also be uh, somebody who's skittish about sin and the word sin and the concept of sin and, and how it isn't good for our self-esteem and we're offended by that. Well, John also is into sin. He uses the word sin 17 times in this short letter. There are only two books in the entire New Testament that use the word sin more, Romans and Hebrews, and both of those books are three times longer than 1 John. So he, he, here, here's, here's the point. John is very serious about key doctrines in the Christian faith. One of them is the fallen nature of man, sin, and the other one is the redemption of our souls by the blood of Jesus. And so then he says, if we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there it is. The importance of confession. Now this is true of anyone, not just Christians. 
If we say that we do not sin, we deceive ourselves. It's true of anybody. If we say that we do not sin, we deceive ourselves. Now there is no question that, that as much as others may deceive us in life, and we don't like it when others deceive us, right? Can I at least get an amen on that? Okay, no one deceives us more than who? Ourselves. We are into self-deception. You can call it denial. You can call it lying to yourselves. One author calls it fancy fantasy when you deceive yourself. Fancy fantasy. Another person calls it our favorite pastime. <laughs> so it's not baseball the American way. It's, it's self-deception. Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 6. Do not deceive yourself. God cannot be mocked. You reap what you sow. So John says that the solution to this is to confess our sins. And, and I, I love this. this. And I know this has the potential to create some tension. Matthew Henry says of this passage, Christianity is the religion of sinners. Christianity is the religion of sinners. All other religions are religions of misconception. The misconception that you can save yourself. So we confess. At least we confess if we want to live in genuine fellowship with God and with each other and we want to have complete joy, then we do confess. Now, obviously, Christianity is also the faith of the gospel, of the power of God to make us righteous by the resurrected Jesus. But sin is why. We need the gospel. We need the resurrected Jesus because we are sinners. So again, the, the, the word for sin is homo logos, same word. And, and here's what we need to remember about that. This is what's interesting about what this Greek word reveals to us. Okay? When we confess our sins, we are not revealing anything new to God. Okay? And now, a lot of us treat it that way, I know. I, I know how our minds work, because I have a mind very similar to most of you. I know that scares some of you, but I do. Okay? But I have a mind just like, you know, if I don't ever say this out loud, God's never going to know. So we're like, okay, if I just keep this to myself, then God doesn't have to know about this. It'll just be my little... Okay, he's not much of a God if he doesn't know this, all right? He knows all about our sin. So confession is not revealing something new to God, but rather it's just agreeing with him. Okay, you're right. Yes, I'm sinning. I agree with you. I'm sinning. Now it's out in the open, at least for me. Let's deal with it, okay? Let's deal with it. Now... One of the challenges is that confessing sin often is a revelation to the people in your life. That's the challenge. Now, here you go. It's not a revelation that you're a sinner. They know that. Amen? Okay. But the specific sin that you might confess to them, that could be a revelation to them because you, you may have been successful in hiding it from them for a while or whatever it is. Okay. Uh, but you haven't hidden it from God, but maybe you've hid it from, hidden it from them. They know you're a sinner, but now you're telling them specifically what sin you are engaged in. They know you've missed the mark, but which mark they're not sure. And I know it's counterintuitive, but without confession, we cannot re sustain real fellowship and joy because we're not walking in the light, because we're not walking with God. We're not walking in truth. We are not being authentic and genuine. That, that, that works against fellowship and joy and that's what John wants from us now what about the requirement that when we confess our sin we should be doing it to a vocational priest or a what's known as a profession a perp a professional religious person somebody like me who gets a paycheck for for doing ministry well it's really not a requirement that you do this with a vocational minister uh, James chapter 5 tells us to confess our sins to one another. And, and what's interesting, by the way, about the letter of James is that he says this within the context of a letter that's being written to a group of people that's suffering and being persecuted. And he's saying that one of the antidotes to suffering and persecution is to confess your sins one another. That's one of the things that, he, that he's trying to get across. And, and, and it's interesting because um, in, in the social science world, uh, they, of course, would never use the word sin or, or, or confession, but they do have a, a term called self-disclosure, which is revealing something about yourself that you normally keep hidden, which sounds a little bit like confession, but they call it self-disclosure. But what's interesting about the research in self-disclosure is they say that one of the potential benefits of self-disclosure 
is that it makes for better community and it helps you to deal with your problems in a much more efficient and effective way. That's what research has shown. So research, again, in the 20th and 21st century is merely confirming what the Bible has taught for thousands and thousands of years. Um, but also, Peter reminds us that we are all a royal priesthood. All of us in, in church are a royal priesthood. This is where we get that language, if you've heard it before, of the priesthood of the believer. Once you become a believer, you also, in a sense, are a priest. You're serving and ministering to others. See, this is a, a big part of the misunderstanding of the fellowship of the church that many people have. A lot of people think that in the church there are two classes of people. There are the paid ministers, and then there's everyone else that's getting ministered to, and, and that there's actually sort of a, sort of a hierarchy that, that one carries a little bit more respect than the others. And this is all a fallacy, okay? It's not a fallacy that some people in the church get paid for what they do, but it's a fallacy that they're the only ones that do ministry. We're supposed to be ministering to each other. We're supposed to be in community with each other, serving each other, doing the work of the church with each other. It's one of the reasons we have redemption communities and other groups like that for us to be able to get together in community and fellowship with each other. Now, there does have to be some balance and some wisdom with this. That's not to say that you just start going around dumping on people. There must be some wisdom and discernment when you, when you start doing this. There has to be an environment of grace, of trust, and accountability in order to be able to confess with, with effectiveness. And here's one example of two extremes. And I have to speak in a, in a bit of a non-detailed way because I, I don't want to reveal who the, these are. But, but I, I, I'm involved with two institutions. And one of the things that, that they deal with, they deal with a lot of different things. But one of the things they deal with is, is uh, pornography and pornography addiction. So here's, here's one institution and how they, they handle it. Uh, when somebody confesses uh, in this one institution that they are struggling with uh, internet pornography or they're addicted to internet pornography, for that person there is immediate and final condemnation and they are ostracized from the institution and the community. That's it. There's no grace, there's no trust, there's no recovery, there's no restoration. I would suggest to you that's not much of a community and there's not a lot of joy in that. And it is, by default, teaching people in that institution what? Never going to mention, never going to confess this. Never going to confess this. Okay? The other institution, I would suggest, is at the other end of the spectrum. You confess that, and their reaction is like this. Well, that's terrific. That took so much courage. We honor you and commend you for your confession, and then nothing. No response. No follow-up, no recovery, no call to sanctification, no mortification of the sin. This actually encourages license. It encourages the sin to continue taking place. And again, I would suggest, not much of a community, not a lot of joy. And people there have learned that you are commended and glorified and practically canonized for confessing, and then you're not expected to stop. So, Neither environment is biblical. Neither environment honors God nor the sinner. Neither environment promotes community or joy. And neither environment is conducive to sanctification, the act of, of growing up in Jesus Christ. So a great church, this would be what a great church does with confession. Confession is respected, sanctified, and handled with grace, trust, love, and a spirit of forgiveness that assists with the discipline of the person and their discipleship, their growing up in Christ. So in the church, there should be neither ugly condemnation nor flippant license. That's, that's, I know that's a tough balance to strike, but that's what we should be striving for. That's what we should be attempting to practice. And, and that takes fellowship and joy, and it results in fellowship and joy. And it allows us to, as, as the book of Hebrews clearly says, it allows us to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to us and let us run with endurance the race that was set before us, living our mission, living our vision, living our purpose, looking to Jesus, the founder, the author and perfecter of our faith. Confession cleanses us 
and helps remove the distraction of sin so that we can do what we are called to do, which is to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light to a world and a community that desperately needs this good news. So now, I... I'm making the case that confession is of little use without grace, forgiveness, sanctification, and trust. We've talked about grace and trust and sanctification a little bit. Of course, we could go deeper if we had time. But what about the forgiveness thing? I want to spend a little bit of time on that. We haven't mentioned too much about that. And and first, let me say, this is not going to be a, a lesson about how we need to forgive, how we're supposed to forgive, and how we're called in Christ to forgive. All of which is true and all of which is good, And if you're looking for a good place to study in the Bible about the reality of that, I would suggest you go to Matthew chapter 18, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 18, and and read and study verses uh, 15 through 35. That will help you with that. But that's not what we're going to do this morning. Instead, there's another side of forgiveness that I want to spend a little time on that I don't think hardly ever gets talked about. And that's the fact that we're not very good at asking for forgiveness. We're not very good at recognizing that we were in the wrong and we might need to go to somebody and confess our sin and then work through the process of asking for forgiveness. A big part of it is pride. We don't like to do that. We're scared. It's very humbling to have to go and ask for forgiveness and confess that you've done something wrong to somebody, Uh, especially something you're not even sure if it necessarily hurt them, but maybe you're probing to find out, but you do need to ask for forgiveness. We have found that it's just easier when we do something wrong, when we sin, it's easier to deny, equivocate, or blame somebody else. That's essentially, in fact, in fact, I have a communication textbook that I've been required to use for the last 10 years, different editions as they've written new editions, but uh, that I've been required to use for the last 10 years that actually teaches that this is what you're supposed to do when you cause a problem. See, they can't even say, they, they, again, they've, they've used, they're using euphemisms for the idea of that. When you cause a problem, it's in the DeVito textbook, not Danny, but Joseph. And, and here's what he, he, he says, here's, here are the th- here's what you should do. And he, he, they use the term excuse, if you can believe that. This is what our culture is. This is what we're supposed to teach. He uses the term excuse, and there's three kinds of excuses that you can use. Number one, outright denial. I didn't do that. You're mistaken. We've all experienced that, right? I just saw you. No, light was in your eyes. I didn't do it. Whatever. It's your imagination, okay? Whatever that is. The second one is equivocation, okay? That's when you say, yes, I did do that, but it really is not as bad as you're making it out to be. Or, yes, I did do that, or, but you are way too insensitive. It's just not that big of a deal. So that's equivocation, all right? And then the third one is to just blame the person, okay? Yes, I did do that, but you deserved it. You were asking for it. I had no choice but to do that, okay? We've all experienced this, right? You're all... I'm hoping you're all sitting there going, mm-hmm. Or, or the one, those of you who are not shaking your head in any way, shape, or form, you're sitting there going, I do this all the time. <laughs> Other people. Okay. Well, here's the fourth option, which I think Jesus would advocate, that usually works a lot better than what I just described. David Augsburger calls it the empathetic four-step process for asking for forgiveness. And it's hard. I practice this. I do it myself. You got to eat a little bit of crow to be able to make oh, a lot of crow. You got it's humble pie time when you do this. But I will tell you, it is very restorative. If people want reconciliation, restoration, and forgiveness, this helps. This is a wonderful tool. Step one is to go to the person. By the way, don't do this through texting, emailing, or even calling on the phone. All right. It, it, it's best if you do it in person. If, if, if it's long distance, maybe on the phone. But really, get a, get a time when you can be face-to-face, in physical proximity with the person without computer mediation. Okay? Did I make that clear enough now? <laughs> okay. So you're sitting with the person. The first thing that you do is you declare the offense. This is essentially a confession of what you did. 
And the reason you need to tell them this is because you want to make sure that you're both talking about the same thing. In the past, I have actually apologized for something that the person didn't realize that I did. They were mad about something else, and so that just added to the list the reason why the people, person was mad at me. So, Get on the same page, okay? This is what I did, right? Yes, we can agree with that, okay. Uh, the second, as hard as that first step might be, the second step is, is, is probably the most difficult. The second step is to acknowledge the pain that you have caused the other person, if in fact you've caused them pain. Acknowledge the pain. You actually have to sit and talk. And now, I know that this hurt you, this caused pain for you, and, and I want to talk a little bit about that because here's what Augsburger says. This is a little bit too mushy for me, but I also know the reality of how this works. He says, before two people can move forward together in restoration and reconciliation, they do need to remember the pain together. So, that's tough, but I also know that it works. It's very beneficial. It's very restorative. So you declare the offense. You acknowledge the pain. And then step three, you promise what? Never do it again. Now, I know, I know, a lot of cynics in here. I'll lead the charge on that. Of course you're going to do it again, <laughs> you know. You have to promise not to do it again. The person wants to hear that. Now, you may or may not do it again. The idea is that by, by going through this process, it'll make you more self-aware so that maybe you won't and, and, and you'll be able to uh, uh, lean into uh, the power of Christ that controls and constrains us better. But you promise not to do it again. And then step number four, which for many people at this point, they say, well, this is a foregone conclusion. Why do you have to do this? Well, the reason is because it's not a foregone conclusion. Step four is to ask for forgiveness literally say will you forgive me so so now you're extending the olive branch but you're asking for uh, something in ret- you're asking for them to acknowledge what has happened here and, and and that often facilitates more discussion but it's again it's very restorative it's very it's very reconciling it's very helpful so this process not only facilitates forgiveness, but it also facilitates reconciliation and restoration. Now, let me close. We're talking about proclamation, prayer, confession, promoting unity, the need for integrity and honor. That's a lot for one staff in a, any church, not just here, but any church to lead and to manage. So we got together and we thought that as we wrap up this message, this would be a good time to talk about the elders that we have in uh, Redemption Arcadia and, and who they are and how we need to really begin to start building into um, the elders. Uh, primarily, what elders do is that they protect staff, they protect the congregation, and they offer spiritual guidance into ministry. They protect the staff, they protect the congregation, and they offer spiritual guidance into uh, ministry. So how do they protect the staff? Well, they protect the staff from dubious and superfluous claims, accusations, and activities. So they kind of help protect them from those kinds of things. You know, coming to the staff and saying, uh, we need this, and it's really not something that aligns with our vision and, and our mission and other areas. Also, they are here to protect the congregation from unscrupulous and heretical pastors. So now you're thinking, well, they're kind of in, they're kind of in between. They're kind of in the middle. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're really in the middle. And then they are to wa- offer wise spiritual guidance for ministry. It's a tough job. It's a tough job. Caught right in between. That's why Scripture is clear about the requirements for elders or what they call overseers. Let me just read this passage from 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul writes, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? 
He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now, at, at uh, Arcadia, we have had four overseers for the last uh, year and almost a month. And they are Sean Johnson, person who, uh, the pastor of the worship and music up here, you, you know him. He's an elder here. Sean Mortensen, uh, you also know him and see him occasionally if you're around here at, at all. Uh, he is the uh, Redemption Director of Communications and Media, but he attends, he and his family attend Redemption Arcadia, and uh, he is uh, the former pastor, uh, um, uh, congregational pastor of, of this uh, congregation as well. Uh, and he offices with us at Arcadia, so he hangs out with us, so he's also an elder. I am an elder, and Tyler Johnson is also an elder in Arcadia. He's the lead pastor for all of Redemption, but he is an elder with us. So you realize now we've got, we've got four elders. One of them's kind of spread thin. Tyler gets, he's, he's got six congregations and a lot of other things that he's trying to kind of maneuver and manage, but he's still, but, but he's kind of spread thin, obviously. And, and then all of the elders, if you haven't figured this out yet, all of the elders are staff. Okay, so that's interesting. So if all of the elders are staff, they're probably really good at protecting staff, but not very good necessarily at protecting the congregation, right? At least in theory, we're trying hard. But at least in theory, you could make that argument. Amen. So we started a process several months ago of thinking about how to build into that, especially with non-staff elders. And we felt like we needed at least in, in the immediate future to add one or two non-staff elders to the elder board and start building into the elder board slowly, methodically, uh, with wisdom, with a lot of prayer. And so we started that process a number of months ago. Let me take you through the process. Uh, we started with prayer, and all throughout the process there's been a lot of prayer. Number two, the current elders, we discussed potential candidates in the congregation for new elders. Uh, then the lead pastor, that would be me, I took the names of potential elder candidates to the All Redemption leadership team to, for their input, for their prayer, to see if they knew anything that maybe would help us in this process. Uh, then we uh, set up a coffee or a lunch meeting with anybody who might be a candidate in order to let them know that, that we're thinking about the possibility of them coming on as an elder. And during that meeting, we encouraged prayer. Uh, we got feedback from the potential candidate. We discussed the responsibilities of eldership in, in a lot more detail than I necessarily just discussed. We reviewed the process, and we gave them a clear, uh, a clear disca disclaimer that this was not a done deal. And then number five, if practical, the uh, candidates were invited to the next elders' retreat. We have an elders' retreat every six to 12 months to share a meal and sit in on a couple of hours of the retreat, which was done at the last elders' retreat. And then we make the announcement to the congregation that we're doing this. That would be right now. That's what we're doing right now. And then uh, once we do that, and you know who we're considering, uh, we schedule a sort of a town hall meeting, which is, gonna be, which is scheduled for Sunday, March 24th, so four weeks from today, after the 11 o'clock service, where members of, the, of Redemption Arcadia can come in and interact with the, 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 uh, all of the elders and the elder candidate and just ask questions and get to know the elder candidate a little bit better if they don't already know them. And so that is to be done on March 24th. And then once that is done, the uh, elders, after prayer and input and reflection and discussion, will vote on the candidates. And then uh, at some point, we will present, if there are newly elected elders, we will present uh, the elders to the congregation, which we have, in theory, scheduled if everything goes well. So, now we can have the picture of Jack DeBartolo. He is our candidate right now. There he is. Now, uh, Jack's been around a long, long time. He, he's been uh, with um, uh, East Valley Bible Church prior to the, um, prior to the merger of East Valley Praxis and Second Mile 
that formed Redemption Church uh, more than two years ago. So he has a long, long history, he and his family. And by the way, if you, if you don't recognize him, uh, chances are uh, it, it's because, number one, he's not smiling in this picture. This guy always smiles. I don't understand what happened there. And he's not with his family. He's always with his family, too. So we've got a non-smiling, familyless Jack DeBartolo up there, and that may be why you don't recognize him. But he's also here this morning in this service uh, and so uh, he'll be around if you want to talk to him. But this is who we are nominating, and uh, we are working through uh, candidacy with right now. And so on March 24th, uh, we're going to have him here at the um, uh, at the uh, uh, this little town hall thing that we're going to do. We're going to provide pizza and salad so that you can have something to eat and maybe take a nap during the process after you've eaten. But um, we'll be doing that. The elders and Jack will be here for that. So. Um, this is all a part of us building a stronger church. You can see that we've, in the, pa- in the past few weeks, we've started a student ministry. We're, we're, we've been working on the elder process. And there are other things behind the scenes that we are continuing uh, to work on and to build into. And it was, uh, it was just time to be able to announce that we were working on this as well. And this will be an ongoing process. We're not going to, if Jack gets elected, we're not going to just stop with Jack. We'll probably move forward with this process uh, with others as well. Okay? So confession promotes community, fellowship, joy, and it's part of what makes a church great. It part, it's part of what makes a church strong. Let me pray, and we'll have uh, Sean come up and lead us into our time of reflection. God, thank you that you uh, challenge us with, with, with the hard stuff, with those things that are counterintuitive, with those things that we maybe don't necessarily like but are actually good for us. And so, God, I pray that we would just lean into that as your people, as your church. I pray that you'd give us the courage to do that. And, God, I I pray that you would help us to see and understand how wonderful it is when we do live in open community and confession with each other. God, help us to do that. We ask it by the power of your Son. Amen.